He was the founder of Thermopolis. Well-respected businessman and cattleman, a dashing bachelor, expert horseman, and a killer. This cattleman and businessman was a true pioneer of Hot Springs County, Wyoming. The pioneers of outlaw country, cowboys, lawmen, and outlaws, to the businessmen and women who all helped shape Thermopolis and Hot Springs County, Wyoming. Here are their stories. Van Hansen, the murder of Tom Bird. A rumor of an unfaithful wife and friend, three gunshots in rapid succession, a man on the run. This is the story of Ben Hansen and Tom Bird. Ben Hansen, a young cattleman and expert horseman, homesteaded land bordering on the Wind River Indian Reservation in the early 1890s. He had spent years in the saddle as a cowboy for other men and was now ready to make his own fortune. He knew this land well. It was untamed and lawless and full of promise. Both cowboys from the Embar Ranch and outlaws from the hole-in-the-wall country, flush with spending money, were roaming the area. They were visiting the Hog Ranch at Andersonville and the campground at Rocky Row, which was then an illegal settlement on the hot springs belonging to the Shoshone and Arapaho Indians. Ben saw an opportunity and divided his homestead into a town plot at the mouth of Owl Creek. Soon, he had sold lots to the pharmacist and general store owner, Ed Enderley, as well as to the saloon operators and other businessmen. Another town, dubbed Hot Springs, had sprung up on the other side of the Bighorn River, but Ben had plenty of interest in his little, unnamed town. At the time, the post office was located at the Ed Cusack Ranch about two miles up Owl Creek and was called Tory in honor of Colonel Tory, owner of the Ambar Ranch. When Cusack resigned as postmaster, the landowners on Hansen's land circulated a petition to have the post office move to the town site at the mouth of Owl Creek, with Ed Enderley appointed as postmaster. W.T. Slane, one of the pioneers on Hansen's land, recalls, We received notice from the post office department that this had been granted. Then it was up to us to decide on a name for the new town. Ben Hansen, owner of the town site, and Dr. Julius A. Schelke called a meeting of the citizens to decide on a name. One of the first suggestions was to name the town site Hansonville in Ben's honor. However, Dr. Schelke said he already had a name picked out. It was Thermopolis. Lee Walter, one of the men present, later said, Out of his Latin or Greek or something, Schelke had evolved the name Thermo, meaning hot, and polis for city, Walter added. I think Enderley and Hansen had already accepted it, and the meeting was more to announce it. Slane defended his vote for the strange new name by saying, Joe Miguel seconded the suggestion, and as he and the doctor were supposed to have classical educations, so the rest of us fell for it. 
and the deed was done. And Enderly filled out his blanks with a name and sent them into Washington. I hope future generations of the Basin will not hold this against me, as I really had nothing to do with choosing the name, had never heard of it, until Dr. Shelke sprung it up on us. Now, for the names of the other culprits, they were the taxidermist Ed Cameron, the freighter Warren Bickford, Dr. Shelke, townsite owner Ben Hansen, the new postmaster Ed Enderley, schoolteacher Joe Miguel, Ed O'Reilly, Lee Walter, and myself. With the town of Thermopolis thus established, Hansen continued to build on his town lots and grow his wealth. He ran the local barn, owned some of the best buildings in Thermopolis, and became a very prominent and well-known citizen of the town he had founded. In June 1895, the Fremont Clipper reported that Ben Hansen of Thermopolis, who is here attending the district court, says that there are 60 or more persons at the Springs, and that they are coming and going all the time. It is expected that nearly 5,000 people will visit at the bathing resort this season. Dances were the chief amusement and Thermopolis had its share. These were old Western affairs where families would travel all day to get to the dance and then would stay from several days to a week with the dancing continuing every night. One Thanksgiving dance, believed to be held in Thermopolis, was noted for its women. There were 14, counting the children. These were all the women to be had in the whole country from Lost Cabin to Manderson up to Owl Creek as far as Blondie's Ranch. There were between 30 and 35 men all lined up for their chance to dance around the room. The music was a fiddle and a guitar, played by anyone who thought he could play. Boots and spurs jingled over the floor as some cowboy bowed before a lady in her frill skirts or whirled her around at grand right and left or swing them on the corners. An unnamed author penned an ode to this dance that was printed in December of 1894. Jolly Jim. To a dance he took her on Thanksgiving Day with Ben Hansen's team and Ed Cusick's Shay. And Jim's heart was full. With love he was blind. He never thought of his friend that rode on behind. Jim's friend must have enjoyed his ride. Behind a fiddler and his intended bride. With the girl on the team, Jim had his hands full, you know. So he took friend along to handle the bow. Now to Jim, a pleasure it may have seemed to drive the life out of Hanson's team. But Ben says he greatly fears they'll have to break him a yoke of steers. When Jim gets married and he will give a free dance and cut a great swell on Enderly's pants with Enderly's pants and Huntington's hat and the borrowing act, he'll have it down bad. Business was booming and attract the attention of businessmen in Glenrock over 200 miles away by stage. Tom Bird, J.E. Higgins, and Mark McGrath came to Thermopolis looking for business opportunities. They liked the prospects and took over Ed Enderley's little store. Thomas Morrow, under his alias of Tom Bird, was a well-known businessman and former deputy from Converse County. 
He had moved his wife and two children with him to this wild town. His business partner, Martin McGrath, also moved his wife and toddler sons to Thermopolis, where they employed local cowboys and outlaws as help on their rugged homestead. Women and children were still a rare sight, but starting to become a little more commonplace. Ed Enderley, himself a husband and father, continued to run the post office. With his wife and two small boys, he built a new sturdy log store on another town lot in Thermopolis. His new general store was all the name implied. Shelves were crammed with merchandise ranging from bolted yard goods to whiskey to hardware and drugs. The Enderly home was situated at the west end of the dusty main street, at the corner where the road turned south. When thirsty cowboys had overdone it in the bar, they often hurrahed the little community. The stout log sides of the home stopped many stray bullets, shot at random as the cowpunchers rode along the main street, firing their pistols. Ed's two boys frequently dug out the spent slugs for fishing line sinkers. Doctors were scarce in those early pioneer days of the Bighorn Basin. Dr. Shelke spent most of his time in Lander, over a hundred miles away. Therefore, druggists were often called upon to prescribe and administer for human ills and ailments. Through necessity, the pharmacist substituted his knowledge of medicines and autonomy in lieu of a professional medical man. Hence, Ed Enderley was doctor as well as merchant to the 60 residents of Thermopolis. Ben Hansen also continued to build his town up and rumors of a love interest started to whirl around the handsome bachelor. This little town attracted the attention of a journalist from Lander's Wind River Mountaineer. After detailing the arduous journey by stage to reach this wild frontier, the reporter described what he found in the fall of 1895. On Wednesday, October 23rd, a visit to the lively town of Thermopolis was made. Thermopolis is located five miles north of the Springs at the junction of Owl Creek and the Bighorn River and is adjoining the reservation line. The little city presented a lively appearance and recalled to mind an article of editor Peyton's, which recently appeared in the Bighorn River Pilot, to the effect that the Bighorn Basins could whip or stand off any nation on Earth. Scores of men with six shooters strapped to their side and not a few carrying Winchesters were seen hurrying in and out or leaning against some convenient building or hitching rack. Some wore sleepy expressions, Others were drowning their cares and sorrows in the bowl, while all had a set look of determination stamped upon the face, and each was watching the other slyly out of the corner of his eye. Judge Joe Magill, with his knee leggings and 45 colts and full cartridge belt, had the air of a commanding general. It indeed produced a real live frontier town picture similar to ones which from time to time appear in the Police Gazette, and to all appearances, Peyton's army had assembled. Judge Miguel came to the rescue and volunteered the information regarding this unseemly scene of excitement and unusual activity. Al Hainer and Jake Snyder had been arrested the night previous, 
charged with selling to Judge Sliney some calves, not their own property, and were to be taken to Embar that day to have a preliminary hearing before Judge Miguel. And these armed men were guards, deputies, witnesses, and friends of the prisoners who were to accompany them. Thermopolis is a lively little town, the various lines of business incident to a frontier town being fairly well represented. Higgins, Bird, and McGrath carry a large stock of general merchandise, are thorough businessmen, kind and courteous to their customers, and are doing a good business. E.C. Enderly, the druggist, carries a stock of goods that would do credit to a more pretentious place. Mr. Enderly is also postmaster, the post office occupying one corner of the huge drugstore building. George Imes carries on a meat market business, has a neat, clean shop, and supply of fresh meats at all time. A. Anderson, formerly of Lander, is engaged in the restaurant and bakery business, runs a wagon to the springs during the summer months, sets a good table, and is making money. Mrs. H.J. Purcell is a proprietor of the Thermopolis Hotel and is doing a good business. In connection with the mention of restaurants and hotels, it might not be out of place to suggest that a good lodging house would be a paying investment at Thermopolis, as the sleeping accommodations are of the poorest order. J.P. Nelson, the blacksmith, is a first-class workman and is the busiest man in town. The saloon of Cunnington and Schaefer, R. Jack, at one time a typo in this office, is a popular resort, and the boys are doing nicely. Material is on the ground for several new buildings, which will be rushed to completion in the early spring. The reporter concluded his tour of Thermopolis with the town founder. The genial Ben Hansen, owner of the town site, is putting the finishing touches to a handsome residence, and Dame Rumor has it that Ben will soon take onto himself a better half. However, if rumors are to be believed, the dame that Ben was courting already had a husband. A month after the reporter's tour of the fledging town of 60, Ben Hansen celebrated the Christmas season with a dance in his newly constructed hall. Aidan Johnson and Irish Tom Walsh had hauled logs for a new house for Ben, and he was hosting a housewarming party. Tom Bird and Ed Enderly had been drinking in Andersonville at another dance and had returned to Thermopolis just as Hansen's party was winding down. They went to Ed's store and had a light lunch and then proceeded to the hall where the dance was in progress. According to E.T. Payton, the local newspaper editor of the Bighorn Pilot, trouble had been brewing for some time between Ben Hansen and Tom Bird. For a year or more, there had been reported an intimacy between Ben Hansen and Mrs. Bird. It is stated that these rumors came to Bird's ears, that he had spoken to Hansen about the matter, and Hansen's intimate friends say Bird had threatened to kill him. The night of the shooting, Bird had been drinking during the evening, but had attended another dance across the Bighorn River. He started to go to his home about 10 o'clock when he was invited by a friend to attend a dance at Ben Hansen's. One of Hansen's friends learned of this and warned Bird to stay away, as there might be trouble. Hansen evidently took this as a challenge and said it was trouble he was looking for. As they reached the door, the dance was just breaking up. In fact, several 
of the merrymakers had already departed for home. Tom Bird was carrying Ed Enderley's pistol as he advanced toward the place where the dance was still going on. Ben Hansen was dancing with Mrs. Purcell when he told her his life was at stake. Knowing Western men, she immediately begged him to keep out of sight, but he insisted upon dancing. As they reached the door, they saw Tom Bird coming out of the saloon. He was heard to say, There's Tom. He's after me. I'll have time to go around the floor once more. So around the floor they waltzed once more. When they reached the door the second time, Hansen reached down to pull the door shut, and some witnesses say they saw Tom Bird take aim at Ben. Others say that Ben was hidden behind the door. All agreed that the two men were close together, and Hansen was quicker on the draw. As Bird entered, Hansen quickly moved into view, shoving his own six-shooter into Tom's face and pulled the trigger. The bullet missed, but exploding gunpowder confused and blinded Bird. Hansen's second shot also went astray, grazing him on the shoulder, but a third slug plowed through the point of Bird's chin. He crumbled to the floor, dead. Bird fell lengthwise in the door, and screaming women had to step over the dead body before they could get out of the room. According to Ed's young son, tables turned, the hunter became the victim, it all happened so quickly, Bird didn't fire a shot. The firing was at point-blank range, and the face and neck of the deceased was badly powder-burned. The shot which killed Bird entered the chin just below the lower lip. Death was instant. The man fell without even a groan. Bird did not fire a shot, but a six-shooter was found lying between his feet. Hansen's friends claimed that Bird had drawn his six-shooter before opening the door. Bird's friends say that the gun was drawn after the shooting began. Friends of Hansen claimed that Bird had previously threatened his life, E.T. Payton said. Intense excitement followed the killing, and some in the crowd wanted to lynch Hansen. But Bird's partner, Mark McGrath, used his efforts in quieting the crowd, finally succeeding in doing so. But the odor of burned gunpowder remaining heavy in the air, it was Ed Enderley, the pharmacist and sometime doctor, who pushed through a group of gawking onlookers. He examined the body stretched full length on the dance hall floor and officially pronounced dead one James Morrow, alias Tom Bird. Justice Miguel, who had come up from Basin City on official business, impaneled a coroner's jury and held an inquest. Immediately after the inquest, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Hansen, who had been quick to leave Thermopolis. Ben was subsequently apprehended and jailed at Lander, where he was arraigned by that Friday evening. The hearing was postponed until the 28th of December, so that the state of Wyoming would have a representative. Hansen was held for murder in the second degree, and the bond fixed at $2,000, which was given, and the prisoner discharged until the next term of the district court. The body of Tom Bird was moved to Enderley's home, where it was laid out on a buyer, hastily constructed of planks placed across two saw horses. With childish curiosity, his small son Earl wanted to see the corpse, but it wasn't until the next day that he was allowed to look, after Bird was encased in a homemade coffin covered with black muslin. In the sitting room of Enderley's home, someone held the youngster high enough so he could see the dead man. 
Earl remembered that a small pane of window glass had been placed above the victim's face, and he noted a patch of court plaster had been struck over Bird's chin to conceal the mortal wound. Tom Bird was buried in the old Thermopolis Cemetery. Today, the graveyard has lost its identity under alfalfa growing in a field somewhere in Lucerne. His widow and children received a life insurance payment from the Odd Fellows, from which he was a member, and they disappeared into history. Life went on at Ben Hansen's town site despite the murder, and excitement filled the air. The Indian Reserve was opening for settlement, and Thermopolis was moving closer to the springs. His original town site would soon become known as Old Thermopolis. After paying his increased bond of $3,500, Ben Hansen was still being held in the county jail nearly a year later without a trial. He evidently thought he had spent enough time behind bars. On the night of August 6, 1897, Ben escaped his prison cell by cutting his way through the iron sheeting, forming the ceiling, gaining his way to the attic. From there, it was very easy to reach the manhole over the hallway near the landing of the stairs that led to the jail. And through this, he let himself drop to the floor. Deputy Sheriff Logue's horse was grazing in the courthouse yard, and his saddle was in the jail barn. Ben saddled the horse and was off. The next morning, Deputy Logue sent out telegrams and letters to the sheriffs of the various counties and to the railroad centers. About noon took up the trail of the escaped prisoner and started in pursuit. The newspapers all agreed. It is not generally believed that Hansen will be captured for some time to come, as he is very acquainted with the country, having been a cowboy for many years and is well-liked on the range and has lots of friends who would gladly aid him in his effort to escape. These friends were none other than the Wild Bunch and other outlaws who frequented Thermopolis at the time. By November, it was reported that once he had escaped, Ben Hansen had gone directly to his friends near Thermopolis. From there, Ben was sent to the Hole in the Wall hideout, where he remained for several days. It was believed he went north to go to the Klondike in pursuit of gold. By October, goods belonging to Ben Hansen were sold at public auction. Another year passed, and in 1898, Constable Vanderveer held a sale of Ben Hansen's horses at the old town of Thermopolis. They sold at prices varying from $5 to $11 per head. Rumors continued to swirl of Hansen's whereabouts. Sheriff Morris went to Oregon upon receiving notice of Hansen's capture in that state, but the man held there was not Hansen. Again, another man was captured in Phoenix, Arizona. However, this vagrant was not the wanted Ben Hansen, and Ben, just like Tom Bird's wife and children, faded into history. That would have been the end of his story. However, Ed Enderley saw him one last time. Several years later, Ed happened to be in a North Dakota town on business. He recognized Hansen, who by then had assumed another name and was engaged in the livestock business. Although Ben Hansen hankered to return to Thermopolis for a visit, he was dissuaded from doing so. 
he was advised that Martin McGrath was prepared to press charges in the murder. If Ben ever snuck back to see his town that he had founded with such high hopes, we will never know. Today, his fall from grace is complete, as few remember him for more than just the murderer of the prominent businessman, Tom Bird. Thank you for listening to Pioneers of Outlaw Country. I am your host, Jackie Dorothy. Be sure to subscribe to Pioneers of Outlaw Country so you don't miss a single episode of this historic series. The stories of our pioneers were brought to you by the Hot Springs County Pioneer Association. And this podcast was supported in part by a grant from Wyoming Cultural Trust Fund, a program of the Department of State Parks and Cultural Resources. This is a production of Legend Rock Media.